0: Hi, Sarah.
1: Hi, everybody out there. Um, We're going to start off this week by talking a little bit about the song that you hear at the beginning and interspersed throughout our podcast every week. Um, The song was recorded by a group of workers and low-wage industries in Chicago um, in the Fight for 15 movement. And this week, a bunch of those workers went out on strike. Um, so we're very happy that they've given us permission to use their song. Um, we solicited suggestions on the internet, and somebody sent this one our way, and it was really great to hear a modern-day song about labor and unions. It was perfect for us. So this week, we have there are several hundred workers at fast food restaurants, retail shops, um, and more across Chicago that are out on strike. And Josh wrote about it for Salon this week, so Josh, tell us a little bit more.
0: You know, after our first podcast, it was pointed out on Twitter that when you say that something is striking about a strike, it sounds like a pun, but there have just been quite a few striking strikes in the period since we started the Belabored podcast, and today... You're doing
1: it for us, aren't you?
0: Today, for those who don't know the secret of the podcast, we're recording on Wednesday afternoon, so... Our today is not your today, but our today being Wednesday, there are hundreds of non-union fast food and retail workers out on strike in Chicago. What is striking about these strikes is first that it represents a model that we've seen here in New York of low-wage workers who are calling for a union through an organization where the organizing is spearheaded by community organizing groups, funded in significant parts by unions, demanding a raise to $15 an hour, not the kind of milk toast demands that we sometimes see from progressives. <laughs> <laughs> Calling for $15 an hour and the right to organize without intimidation. That model came out with a splash in November in New York when fast food workers went on strike with a couple hundred strong We saw it grow earlier this month in New York to 400-some workers. These workers in many ways are echoing what Walmart workers did by going on strike in the fall, Walmart retail workers who in turn were following in the footsteps of Walmart warehouse workers who went on strike earlier in the year. And now we see workers in Chicago doing the same. And one of the wrinkles in Chicago is that, according to the organizers, they set out community groups to organize around fair hikes, and the people they went to talk to said, you know what, the real issue with the fair hike is my pay is so low, I want to talk about my job. And then they gathered together fast food workers as in New York to organize, and retail workers kept showing up. And so the campaign there is organizing fast food workers like in New York, but also organizing retail workers like the national Walmart campaign. We see another example of collaborations between unions and alt-labor groups, of strikes that are carefully designed to try to find a way, like threading a needle, to make an impact on the company, engage customers, engage other workers, and do it without getting everybody fired, which U.S. law has made it very interesting to do, and a real challenge to the direction of our economy. And so the fact that the strikes are happening in Chicago as well as in New York is important, in part because we're talking about enormous, enormous companies that are not going to concede money or power Unless they're faced with something that looks to them like A the bona fide national uprising. And though that may be quite a way off, it is one step closer now than it was last I'm gonna week. Make the whole world so fight man no live life your fight. That, that special strike segment now leads us into <laughs> what long time three week listeners will know is our News of the Week roundup. Something I've been following over the past week is the tremors going on within the Walmart supply chain. Today, today for us being Wednesday, while these workers are on strike in Chicago, Walmart workers around the country are doing coordinated actions, delegations, where while they're not going on strike, they're acting collectively by going together to managers to talk about scheduling. And this is striking to me in part because it's a return to the kind of store-by-store organizing of confrontational actions that took place before there were ever strikes in Walmart stores and laid the groundwork for them. It also follows something I was writing on for The Nation last week, which is ongoing scrutiny to issues in the Walmart supply chain. We've seen recently workers in Nicaragua speaking up about a Walmart supplier who they say fomented a mob of their co-workers to violently assault them and beat them. We've seen also a survivor and a, an activist from Bangladesh in the United States on tour talking about what they allege is Walmart's very intimate complicity in the factory fire there. And we're having this conversation just after news came out of a collapse of a building with several other apparent factories in which Walmart also may be implicated. Again, showing a, a very great cost to the cost-cutting model of Walmart, a model which, like the fast food industries, is spreading in the U.S. economy.
1: So talking about that, um, about the Walmart supply chain, about companies that have largely moved their manufacturing overseas, um, and Josh mentioned the factory collapse today, Was I think it's killed like 89 people It was the last count that I saw. I'm sure that's going to be more by the time you hear this podcast. Last week, there was an explosion at a fertilizer plant in in West Texas. You may have heard about this a little bit somewhere in between the endless manhunt for the two bombers in Massachusetts. But the fact remains that thousands more Americans are killed in workplace accidents than they are in acts of terrorism, violence, mass violence. And most of those workplace accidents aren't Glamorous mass explosions like this one, they're one person at a time. But still, it's something like 4,000, 5,000 a year were killed in workplace accidents.
0: I think over 3,000. Over
1: 3,000 at least. And this is, this was not glamorous, right? There were more people died in this explosion in Texas than died in the Boston Marathon bombing. If you wanted exciting news footage, I guess explosions are explosions. But there was no manhunt for the owner of the factory, right? There was no um, debate over the role of, I don't know, I I assume the owner of this factory is white. I could be entirely wrong about that. Um, There was no talk of of profiling factory owners um, for the deaths that they might cause. There wasn't even any talk of, I don't know, fully funding OSHA so they could afford to Inspect factories more than once every 10, 15, 20, 120 years. It's just depressingly sort of taken as the cost of doing business. We pay some attention when this happens in this country. We pay almost no attention to when it happens overseas. Um, Friend of the podcast, um, labor historian Eric Loomis, made the point on his blog that we should treat workplace accidents, um, we should hold the companies liable for them to American labor law wherever their labor is actually taking place. Because otherwise we're, you know, we're seeing people outsourcing responsibility for horrible deaths on their watch to factories across the world.
0: On that cheerful note, something else we're watching this week <laughs> is the reintroduction of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act on Thursday. This is a bill that would ban workplace discrimination against people based on sexual orientation or transgender status. And many people don't know, some people listening to this podcast may not know, that under federal law, you can be fired for being gay or being trans. This is something that the polling shows many people don't know is the case. Interestingly, the polling also shows, as popular as marriage equality now is, the idea that gay people should be able to keep their jobs despite being gay is way more popular and has been way more popular for decades even than marriage equality. And so we have, as is all too familiar, a policy position that has widespread support and yet has had fairly limited momentum in Congress. We have even seen a Republican primary debate where we had one of the candidates answer the question one way and then the other and then say... He, his earpiece didn't work well, and then that he was distracted because he had to go to the bathroom. Because this is an area where you have a very small base that actually thinks openly firing people for being gay should be legal, as under federal law it is, though not always under state law. And then you have the rest of the country. The reintroduction of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act is an opportunity to consider whether this is going to change. There was a perception by some in Congress, including Barney Frank, that the bill failed in the past because of discomfort with including transgender protections. Interestingly, the employment, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has found that more recently since the last go-around in Congress that gender discrimination protections under law cover people who are transgender, although they don't cover sexual orientation. So in the wonderful world of American employment law, if you are, say a gay guy who works at a McDonald's, your boss can't fire you for acting in a way that doesn't conform to gender stereotypes under federal law, but could fire you for being romantically involved with another man. So contemplate that, and contemplate how it is that we continue to have a policy that your boss can openly fire you in the majority of states for being gay, that is so out of line with what most Americans think is fair and just.
1: It's always interesting to me that the majority of people don't really know how easy it is for their boss to fire them. That this is really an issue where people assume they have more legal rights than they actually do. You know, it's interesting that when we're talking about the fast food workers striking, these retail workers striking, there are explicit legal protections for workers who take collective activity on the job. So if you go on strike, that is explicitly protected. But your boss could fire you for almost anything else. In any case, I wanted to end our news roundup on a slightly more cheerful note, um, and talk about the fact that, um, I mentioned the Boston bombings, the Westboro Baptist Church, everybody's favorite uh I, I don't even know what to call them. Um I would not call them religious activists. um, Favorite
0: example of the free speech rights that everyone except for union members has in the United States?
1: Thank you, Josh. Um, They plan to picket the funerals of the three people killed in the Boston Marathon bombings. And a Boston Teamster local said, really? No, I don't think we're having that. And so it's sort of a, a delightful way to turn the stereotype of union thug and particularly Teamster thug on its head and... You have these wonderful pictures of a row of big guys in Teamster shirts standing along the street, um, walling off. I think Westboro was actually a no-show, but just in case. They were there to make sure that nobody had to deal with that um, while going to the funeral for one of their loved ones.
0: Thanks, Sarah. All I is come the dollar, man, you, you. So now we turn to a discussion with a terrific journalist in the labor space who cons- conveniently is sitting about a foot away from me. Belabored's own Sarah Jaffe, who has has a fascinating... I'm sure you're excited to interview her also, right? Oh, (laughs) yes. She has a fascinating article in the new issue of Jacobin Magazine, a magazine I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast to pick up, be it virtually or in ink and paper. And the piece is called A Day Without Care. It is... An exploration of questions around care work, gender, feminism, working days, anti-work, politics, and the home. And so to start with, maybe you could talk about the, the connection that your article makes between the historic movement in the United States to reduce the number of hours that people work, the push for wages for housework in the United States... And the question of the politics of changing work versus trying to eliminate work and the role that gender should and maybe often doesn't play in that conversation.
1: In 30 seconds. In 30 seconds or less. Um, I have to say that this piece and a lot of the things that I've written this year would not exist without this wonderful book called The Problem with Work, written by Kathy Weeks, who is a professor at Duke, who is... Brilliant. And this book was recommended to me by belabored executive producer Sarah Leonard and also um, Jacobin editor Peter Fraze. And the book talks about the work ethic, the way the work ethic is used to control us, but also she calls for a revived shorter hours movement. And I start the piece off quoting one of my favorite figures of labor history, Lucy Parsons. Um, Lucy Parsons, when she was on a trip around the country to try to save her husband, who was and would be executed by um, the state of Illinois for a bombing that he had nothing to do with, she said to one crowd, Benjamin Franklin said that six hours of work were enough for any man, and if that was so then, then two hours should be enough now. This was in the 1880s. So if two hours were enough for Lucy Parsons in the 1880s, I don't know what should be enough for us now. But to talk about this in the term, in terms of gender, the eight hour day movement, the shorter hours movement that um, Lucy Parsons and her husband were part of back then was really popular with women. It became sort of the women's issue. And as we know so often with women's issues in this country, that sort of makes it taken less seriously by a lot of the men. But the the shorter hours movement was a really, really big, important part of the labor movement for a very, very long time. Um, And these days we've been writing about these, movements of workers asking for more hours, right? One of the complaints of the fast food workers of these low wage workers is that they're given part time status, that they're never able to even get enough hours to pay their bills, even on their very, very small wages. And so I started thinking about this and why this was the irony of workers striking for more hours and then thinking about who these workers are. So these workers in a lot of these workplaces um, are mostly women. Part-time work, in another piece that Kathy Weeks wrote, she talks about the way that part-time jobs were constructed around gender roles, right? So part-time jobs came from this place of women might need a little bit of pin money, a little bit of spare cash, they didn't need to work a family-sustaining job because their husband would do that. Um, Walmart, notably, in Bethany Morton's wonderful book, To Serve God and Walmart. Walmart, Wonderful book. Wonderful book. Um, Walmart operated the same way. It, It very much took advantage of hiring these women who had service and care work skills that were not used to working for wages. And so they didn't really complain about being paid very little. And they were very good at their job because they cared about their customers, And then this, you know, this whole um, angle of care work comes in when you're thinking about strikes, when you think about the idea that when we saw, for instance, the Chicago Teachers Union go on strike, the number one complaint against them is that they don't care about the children and they're not caring properly about the children. We see the same thing when nurses go on strike, when home health care aides go on strike, um, and to a lesser extent, when workers in service industries go on strike.
0: Given the concerns that you talk about, the way, and that are addressed elsewhere in the same issue, in, in Megan Erickson's article, for right. example, about bus workers and teachers when they strike, the the ways that care workers' strikes can be turned against workers, can be used to pit them against consumers, the very real hesitation that workers sometimes have about the perception or the fear of abandoning their post. What is the solution in terms of care workers' leverage in the workplace, in terms of how you navigate those currents?
1: Right. It's really difficult because um, the ethic of care is supposed to be something that women are natural, we naturally have, right? Women are just naturally more caring. This is why, for instance, most teachers are women. Um, Dana Goldstein has written about how when public schools were first getting started in this country, they decided to recruit women as teachers because, once again, they would not have to pay them a family-sustaining wage. But the the language that they used to recruit women was that women were naturally superior, and they were natural caregivers, and they would be so much better with the children because they care so much. And this ends up being used to control workers. Um, it also ends up being erased as a skill. The fact that caring for patients or children or whomever. This is treated like it's not a skill. Um, For the article, I talked to um, this wonderful woman who is a a preschool. Well, she's a daycare provider, but her daycare center is called Little Nancy's Schoolhouse. She refers to herself as an educator. She is very much an educator, right? But she's dealing with kids from three months to three years old. And she points out that she is not even given the same amount of respect that a a kindergarten teacher is given, um, or that a fifth grade teacher is given, because it's just, you know, she's just babysitting. That babysitting is seen as not skilled, that caring about people is seen as not a skill, it's just something you're either good or bad at. And when the teachers go on strike, when the workers go on strike, they are being bad carers. Um, And what... The Chicago Teachers Union did especially well with their strike was they really made the fact that they cared about the children visible and they made it part of their part of their skills, part of what they brought to the table, but made it making in making it visible, and taking away the argument that Rob Emanuel and the others were going to make that they didn't care about the children, they really also undercut this idea that certain people are just naturally caring and they don't need to be paid decently or treated decently or respected because they will just naturally care because it's inherent in them. So it's at once sort of a move to denaturalize this idea of who is naturally caring and who will do this work to point out that it is work, that it deserves to be valued as work and that the people who do it deserve to be valued as workers.
0: So this also touches on the question of (laughs) how the left should look at work, how progressives should look at work also, how the labor movement should look at work. There was an ad campaign panned in various circles by the AFL-CIO called Work Connects Us All about a year ago, which had a a message and images of a bunch of workers with the idea that I watch your kid, you pave my road, you make my food, that touched on something that is very real, that exists, which is the pride that many people take in their work. When I was at Unite Here, the hospitality union, for example, we learned that many of the workers, this term food service that we use often, when folks sat down with group of workers from the union, it turned out they didn't like the term food service mm-hmm. because they didn't see that as what they were doing. Right. They saw what they were doing as hospitality and exactly. these questions around professionalism we talked about in episode one of Belabored with Karen Lewis still yes. available. <laughs> but it, is there a real tension between, on the one hand, this idea of organizing around both in terms of winning public support and in terms of mobilizing workers, organizing around people's pride in their work and what you talk about in your article, which is the idea of l- being liberated from work rather than defined by work.
1: I mean, I think that this is part of the problem is when you are defined by work, then that tends to define what people expect of you. Like I mentioned, the Teamsters playing with the idea of being union thugs and being big, burly men. Um, when we know not all Teamsters are big, burly men, right? We saw Sandy Pope, who is definitely not a big, burly man, run for president of the Teamsters. Um, that these ideas of who a worker is and what inherent characteristics they have can be really damaging. That doesn't mean that you should not necessarily take pride in your work. I take pride in my work. But it does mean that this idea of the work ethic, it can, it again, it's used to control us, right? It's used to tell us that we should behave a certain way and the way we should behave is usually a way that makes more profit for the boss. And so it's important to think about not just the pride we take in our work, but, and also that we have a right to a life outside of work, right? That we, that everybody, whether you love your job or whether you are just getting through your shift behind the grill at McDonald's in order to go home and feed your kids and spend time with your wife. Like, we, that doesn't, that shouldn't matter for whether you are treated well at work or not. That should not matter for about how much you are paid. That should not really make a difference in how you are viewed as a human being. Whether you are, you know, we hear a lot about skilled or unskilled work. I had the interesting experience of sitting through the paid sick days hearings here in New York a few weeks ago and listening to the people who were pro paid sick days would refer to low wage workers, as in describing this as a condition of their employment. Um, whereas the people who were anti-Persic days would talk about low-skill workers, as in this was something that was wrong with the workers, right? And what we're actually saying is that whether you are a nurse or a teacher who went to specialized school in order to learn a skill to do this kind of a job, or whether you are working at Walmart part-time to you know pay the bills, you shouldn't have to be identified deeply with that job in order to be treated like a decent human being. And one of the one of the things that was powerful about the eight hour day movement, about these short hour shorter hours movements, is you could really unite everyone. You might love being a nurse, but you also might not want to work a twelve hour shift anymore. Um, I'm sure we have nurses out there listening who know how that feels. Um, and so that kind of a movement, that kind of potential, um, I think is, has again has broader potential to talk, to reach more workers. Um, even though in this piece I'm talking about very specific kinds of work and very specific gendered issues, I do think that a shorter hours movement, um, as Kathy Week said, has, has the potential to really unite
0: all workers. And are there spaces where you see what could be <coughs> the seeds for that, the seeds for a different kind of politics and a different kind of organizing around hours and around work?
1: I would like to see more of it than I am. Like I said, most of the organizing that we've heard of lately, again, that is even talking about working time is really talking about the idea of just hours, right? Of your boss scheduling you fairly, working with you on your schedule, giving you enough hours so that at the rate of whatever you're being paid, 725, 825, 925 an hour, you can actually sort of pay the bills. That You should have some sort of reliable schedule that you can plan your life around. Um, We have seen some of that. And in that space, I think that there's room to talk about the idea of fewer hours. Um, Interestingly, though, most of the conversations that I've heard about this are coming from academics like Kathy Weeks or from economists like Dean Baker talked about the need for this um, for shorter hours at the beginning of the recession. We still have high unemployment. It makes no sense at all for people to be working 50, 60 hours a week when we have, you know, 7, 8, 9% of the country doesn't have a job or doesn't have enough work.
0: Again, the article is A Day Without Care in the very, very new issue of Jacobin Magazine. Check it out. It's a a demand of your hosts that you do so. brings us to what long-time, three-week listeners will know is the section of the podcast we call ARG! I wish I had written that article.
1: I love the way he does that. I'm going to let him do that every week.
0: We did not agree to that ahead of time. (laughs) Something that I was moved and envious to read was one of my editors at The Nation, Richard Kim, this week wrote a piece called For whom the bell tolls, for whom the alarm sounds, which was comparing, as Sarah was referencing earlier, the way that we as a society address, on the one hand, what we perceive as acts of terrorism, and on the other hand, death in the workplace. And Richard argues that we see pathologies, on the one hand, in the rush to often terrible cultural shifts and policy changes in the wake of terrorism, and on the other hand, what amounts to a really ghoulish indifference in confronting the much greater number of people who perish on the job from deaths that could be prevented and are not so something to read as as we look forward and as these conversations move ahead into the next week sarah what filled you with envy
1: So Josh and I are both giving credit to our editors. Um, I want to talk about a piece that Megan Erickson, who edited the piece that of mine that Josh and I were just discussing, um, Megan has a piece in also the new issue of Jacobin called The Strike That Didn't Change New York. And she starts out talking about the recent school bus driver's strike, which um, basically ended badly for the bus drivers. Um, and it really did not break into, other than people who had to, take their children to and from school and who had to worry about their children getting to and from school. It really didn't penetrate into the news cycle, didn't really penetrate into the collective consciousness of the city, certainly didn't take over people's conversations the way the Chicago teacher strike did. Um, and she uses that as a launchpad to talk about sort of business unionism, particularly among teachers' unions, um, the conflicts over... Schools over education reform, the different types of education reform, starting with the battles in the 60s and 70s over community control. Um, and she ends it with a comment on what it really means to put students first, which students first, as some listeners of this podcast may be aware, is the group started by corporate education reformer Michelle Ree. Um, So it's really, um, it fits very well with my piece. I think Megan, who edited this issue of the magazine, did a really great job of pulling together a lot of pieces that complemented each other. Um, You really should read all of them. Uh, Ned Resnikoff has a great piece in there. There's a bunch that I'm sure we'll talk about in coming weeks. But yeah, I really am fascinated with, and I'm sure Josh is fascinated with, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are fascinated with this question of how do we build... Real social movements that support workers, that are pushing for economic justice, that are taking into account things like what's going on in our schools and what's going on in, as Josh said, um, on the subway, the fair hikes. Um, all of these questions really connect to one another. And when we only focus sort of singularly on what's going on in the workplace for these specific group of workers, we lose a lot.
0: So tune in next week when all of these questions will be answered. All of them. Before we close, though, speaking of editors, we really should this week and every week thank our amazing producer and editor, Natasha Lewis and Sarah Leonard. They are wonderful. I I pray that Natasha will not edit this part of the podcast out. (laughs) But if she does, she will do it tremendously artfully, as she does all things they make all of this possible and so do you by listening to this by tweeting at us by sending us ideas for stories and by spreading the belabored love
1: thanks everybody and we will be back next week
0: thank you this life is hard so hard I must go hey, no, we can't go society hasn't me, and it's crazy because daily it gets hard.